Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Stellenbosch University Center for Chinese Studies in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, let's uh, let's get started with three topics. As always, first we're going to talk about uh, China's reaction to the tragic killing of uh, U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens in Libya, uh, and and again we're going to look at whether this is really China's official policy or if it's just a commentary coming out of Xinhua. We'll look through the tea leaves there. Then we're going to talk about a a, a flurry, no, a blizzard, a torrent of coverage on uh, Sino-Zimbabwe relations that came out this past week. Really, I have never seen anything like this uh, in China-Africa relations, where in one week there was just this concentrated blitz of coverage of all different aspects related to Zimbabwe. So clearly something is going on there. We'll take a look at that. And finally, we're going to uh, look at, we've heard about uh, China's stadium diplomacy. Well, now there's a new building diplomacy, and the latest front in that is Liberia, where China is building a $60 million uh, ministerial headquarters, and uh, Cobus will help us understand why that is important. So, Cobus, uh, let's get started right off the bat with this editorial that appeared in... Actually, let me rephrase that. It's not an editorial. It was a commentary, and I think this is a very important distinction to make. Uh, Wu Liming wrote a commentary on September 13th, uh, really talking about the context for the death of Ambassador Stevens and really as a condemnation for the failed Mideast policy by the United States. But what was he referring to, and was there any implication in your mind that the U.S. policy has failed, now it's time for China to step in? What was your reading of this editorial? Yeah, no, it was it was surprising for me. The, the tone was surprising. I mean, you know, kind of, it's it's interesting. You know, the first the the first paragraph is you know is basically you know how awful these attacks were and how tragic, um, obviously, Christopher Stevens's death was, and then from paragraph two, they just lay into the U.S. Um, you know, kind of saying that the you know on the surface the the, the cause of the, all of this is is the the kind of uh, film that's uh, you know kind of insulting to Islam, but under the surface, the real, it really highlights the U.S.'s flawed strategy in the Middle East, and then it, it just goes on from there. Like, the whole article is basically a long list of everything the U.S. is doing wrong in Libya. Okay, so let's, uh, in you know, in the fourth paragraph, he states, first and foremost, the United States has been pursuing uh, hegemony in the Middle East for decades, and people in the region are fed up with the image of the, quote, arrogant American. So, I mean, there is nothing, you know, to be to, to mistake that. And by the way, let me just correct what I said earlier. This is not an editorial. It's a commentary. And that's a very important distinction. So, you know, nothing is done by accident at Xinhua. And that's what I think is so interesting to kind of analyze this, uh, especially when you're, uh, you know, doing a full frontal attack on the United States like this. Uh, nothing is done by accident. So the question is, what message do you think the Chinese were trying to say? Obviously, they're saying U.S. policy in the Middle East is a failure. Um, is there a perception in your mind that the Chinese are going to fill the American void? Or is it just a criticism front and center? We'll leave it at that. Well, I mean, I was wondering whether it, it's, in any, it's in any way related to uh, Mohamed Morsi's uh, visit to Beijing, you know, that, that we discussed, I think, two weeks ago. Um, you know, China seems to, to be... 
moving towards kind of carving out more of a space for itself in the Middle East. Um, I'm not sure whether this this is could really be read as like where we you know kind of the U.S. is over and we are next. But you know, it it it's interesting that they're kind of wading into this issue at all. You know, kind of it it seems it's not a natural fit necessarily. Traditionally, as we've seen China's you know. Thus far, it's, it's probably not a natural fit for them to be weighing in on this issue at all. So, you know, the fact that they are, you know, seems significant. Well, let's put a little context to this uh, in, in the African context, because we'll focus mostly on North Africa, but obviously the Middle East, the, the Syria issue, and Iran and the Persian Gulf come into this as well. But, uh, you know, China's prominence in, in North Africa really took, you know, center stage. Uh, last year, in the UN debate surrounding the uh, attack, uh, more attack, but the UN Resolution 1973, which authorized military force against Libya and ultimately led to the demise of uh, former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Now, on the Chinese abstained from the vote that actually led this to happening, and the idea was that the Chinese kind of gave a cautious you know, approval for this, uh, and then kind of looked back in horror when they saw what what happened, and they believe that the you know that the American led invasion or attack um, invasion's the wrong word again. These words are very specific. Overstepped the bounds of 1973, and so there's this thought that the Chinese from that point on said this will never happen again. That then led to Chinese intransigence on Syria. Uh, China and Russia kind of stepping, you know, in front of any type of unified action against uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So that, you know, since 1973 in Libya, China's profile in this region has gone up quite a bit, commensurate in some ways with China's interests in the region, which now extends far beyond just oil. But we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, the Shuzhou Battle Group passing through the Suez Canal in Egypt. Um, you know, so those sea lanes are becoming increasingly important. The Morsi visit. Now, but Kobus, one thing you brought up on the Morsi visit, you know, China agreed to tens of millions of dollars in loans and an in investment in Egypt, which pales in comparison to the $1.2 billion that the United States gives to Egypt. So, you know, there is no comparison at the end of the day when we talk about the United States and China vis-a-vis Egypt. So I... I'm still struggling to figure out what their strategy is, but they may, and I'd like to get your thought on this, they may be taking an advantage of a situation where they perceive the United States to be weak and vulnerable, particularly in an election season where there's a lot of confusion in the United States over Mideast policy, in part because Romney is really going after Obama very, very aggressively on this, and they want to kind of, you know, pull the tail of the tiger. What are your thoughts on some of those issues? I think you can. I think you can take. You know, kind of. Um, you can give them a, the benefit of the doubt or not. You know, kind of. I think if you do, and you and you for assume that they are sincere. You know, kind of in in their worries about the U.S. kind of policy in 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 North Africa, then you can probably argue that um, that what China is mostly interested in is stability in the sub-region. You know, um, and that any kind of any any kind of violence, any kind of disruption is um, you know kind of is is makes them worried, and that um, the fact that so much of American um, aid there is military, and so much of American engagement there, it take, you know, is military in different kinds of ways, um, you know, kind of, you know, fuels kind of uh, instability in the region, and that kind of hurts Chinese interests in the long run. I mean, if you, if you don't kind of give the benefit of the doubt, I think... You can also say that they might be interested in, you know, or there might be, it might be an expression of um, 
kind of friction or dissatisfaction with the Americas, um, with with America's uh, position in East Asia, and uh, you know the the um, attempts to to build kind of like pan East Asia kind of defense community. Um, you know, which, which uh, Japan has been kind of worrying and, and, and thinking about whether they should be joining, you know. Um, so, I mean, it, it might have those kind of uh, origins as well, but, you know, I'm not, I don't know enough of that actually yeah. to be able to say yes or no. That, but, that, you know, that, might, that might be taking it for a little bit of a stretch. And I think what you're referring to, particularly these island disputes that are going on right now uh, among the Chinese, the Americans, Japanese, Taiwan, Vietnam, a number of different countries. And the Chinese do resent the, the American presence in that and, and kind of, you know, but I, we'll, we'll kind of show but that. because not that no, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Not not only the island disputes, but also the the um, it's, it's a, I forget the exact name, but it's, uh, it's basically a Pacific community, uh, you know, kind of global Pacific community uh, body that that America is engaged in that pulls in Australia and potentially Japan and you know a whole bunch of of, of the kind of countries on in that in that area sure. um, that that China has been criticizing. Uh, well, let's, you know, so that, that very well may be it and, and may be part of a, a broader narrative of frustration with the United States, which right now at a time of heightened nationalism in China, particularly anti-Japanese nationalism, but the United States is kind of being drawn into that. This all may be part of that as well. Um, also, watch for something else. There are considerable uh, domestic Chinese problems going on. Xi Jinping disappeared for two weeks, uh, suddenly reappeared. They are approaching the transition that's there. One of the things that the Chinese leadership likes to do in these very, very sensitive times is to divert people's attention to overseas, divert people's attention to the United States, to the Japanese, to take away the focus on some of their domestic problems. So that may be another reason that's going on here as well. Uh, finally, let's just wrap up this subject here. Um, the Global Times newspaper, which is a particularly nationalistic newspaper, more on the conservative side in China, uh, they followed up the Xinhua commentary by kind of saying that the attacks on the embassies in Libya and Cairo, uh, the United States embassies in Libya and Cairo, really, and quote here, may have failed in its strategy to promote democracy in the Middle East over the past 10 years. Now, that democracy agenda, that freedom agenda, uh, was one of George W. Bush. So that's when they say those 10 years ago. And they finish up their editorial by saying, the strategy has brought neither a beneficial process of local order, nor has it given the Arab world an obvious inclination to the West. So one of the other themes that, Kobus, you and I have talked about over, you know, the months and months here is this battle for ideas, you know, between the Washington consensus, the Beijing consensus. Uh, and you know, we've talked about how in Angola and Rwanda, the Beijing consensus and the Beijing model of government is really kind of gaining some traction. Here, you're seeing an outright condemnation of the democracy agenda and this open markets, this liberal democratic ideal that the United States has promoted for decades. And the Chinese, you know, press at least is saying it's a failure. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it seems revealing, you know, kind of um, another in, in, in the same vein, but what also seemed revealing to me is in the same, the same op-ed, um, it says that the protests, you know, the, he wrote that the protests are a reminder that the U.S. strategy is flawed. Um, and, the, and the film, you know, at, at, at issue is symbolic of how the West discriminates against and even hates Muslims, um, you know, which is... You know, in the first place, which is kind of rich coming from China, you know, kind of seeing, you know, kind of of their own kind of issues around, you know, in Xinjiang. Um, and yeah, it, it, I was wondering again, you know, kind of the, the, the point that you made, whether this goes back to 
um, domestic issues in China, um, you know, or whether they're trying to kill, you know, several birds with one stone, basically, to deal with, you know, to, to cover domestic issues in China and kind of carve a space in the Middle East. It's possible. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned after all these years of kind of, you know, being a student of China is that any predictions that we put forward are probably wrong. And I think that and I think any predictions that most people put forward are probably wrong. Uh, it's such, a, you know, I think it's so easy for us to assign, you know, it must be because of this or must be because of that. And again, I say us, it, that's anybody on the outside. It is so difficult to tell what's happening. So I, I encourage anybody looking at this situation, looking at these editorials, trying to understand what is going on, to step back a little bit. And there are a lot of factors that are sometimes contradictory at play. And, and you know, this may be an opportunity, but it also may be not coordinated at all. Um, and that is not unprecedented in China, that some of these things just slip through in part because, you know, Chinese society and Xinhua may be focusing their attention on somewhere else. And these commentaries just kind of make their way through. So, you know, caution is what is, is the word of the day. So, um, OK, let's move on to our second topic here. Um, and this one, you know, Kobus, you brought up in, when we were researching the stories for this week and you, you kind of noticed that there was just a, a, you know, a flurry, as I said at the top of the show, of stories about China in Zimbabwe. Um, and I noticed this when I was tweeting this week that, you know, on Monday, I was like, oh, China-Zimbabwe story, okay. Then Tuesday, then Wednesday, then Thursday, one after another. Now, most of them had that kind of very strong, wonderful propaganda feel. Let me read you uh, one from the Zimbabwe Herald. Uh, China working towards a better Zimbabwe. Oh, you got to love that. Um, Oh, here we go. Here's another one. The Chinese kids put up enthralling show. You know, I mean, this comes right out of the propaganda ministry, which I think is, you know, is fantastic. So um, uh, uh, China Daily has one international partnerships build connections. Um, And so uh, and then the the, the best one from the China Daily, a new beginning. So, um, you you know, any wonder why people don't take Chinese uh, the Chinese media too seriously in terms of not being propagandistic? This is really a kind of you know hello, but nonetheless, <laughs> what is going on? Tell me, tell us a little bit about some of the different you know facets that got coverage, and what is your theory behind why uh, China in Zimbabwe got so much attention this week? Well, it seems to me that the kind of the news hook, uh, after reading, you know, several of these articles and plowing through, you know, the many lists of, of all China-Zimbabwe engagement going back to the 60s, you know, um, it's um, it seemed to me that the hook that they're using is um, that there's a, this week there was a something called the China International Fair for Investment and Trade, which was held in Xiamen. And there, um, there was a kind of a sidebar to that fair um, called Zimbabwe, Your Business Partner in Southern Africa. And apparently it was that kind of event that kind of led to all of this, um, you know, all of this kind of, you know, this flowering of China-Zimbabwe kind of, uh, you know, kind of coverage. Um, But it's very interesting. It it seems to, for me, it seems to also um, imply that Zimbabwe is trying to, to, you know, kind of move beyond the the Mugabe years um, in a way that, you know, kind of they keep talking about one of the phrases that came up several times is the lost decade. 
and that they're now trying to kind of move beyond the last decade and, and putting in new telecom systems and you know kind of new kind of technology and, and so on and there's a lot of talk about how many min how you know how Zimbabwe is rich in minerals and how kind of high their their literacy rate is and so on you know so they seem to be trying to position themselves for new investment they, they, they certainly seem to be sending the the you know the message that they're kind of open for business sadly of course Mugabe is still around you know kind of so that that I think is a big problem Yes, Mugabe is still around, but what is so interesting is that it, they seem to be not putting all of their eggs in the Mugabe basket, and, and if the media coverage is any indication on, on, on you know, the Chinese thinking about Zimbabwe, uh, there were some articles that really featured Morgan Changarai rather prominently, and I was, I'm always surprised to see that because the relationship between China and, you know, Beijing and the leadership there and Robert Mugabe runs very, very deep, and so to see you know, them also focus, the, the Chinese leadership and the Chinese press also focus attention on Changarai is interesting to me in part because they seem to be spreading some of their chips around the table a little bit and not putting everything on uh, on Mugabe. What's your what, what's your reading of, of, the, of that coverage of Changarai or my overthinking this? No, I don't think so. Changarai, it, 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 there was an interesting kind of overlap in the news coverage of Changarai this week because he also got married the second time polygamously. So um, there was there was some like uh, kind of dispute about the legality of that marriage, and then he seemed to win in the courts, as far as I understand. And um, my my feeling of that is that um, polygamous marriage is sometimes used around here, particularly in following Jacob Zuma in South Africa's kind of lead. It, it establishes you as a kind of a real African in a way, um, or it's a symbolic way to 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 show that you are that you are not some like kind of effete Western educated, you know, kind of you know, hand puppet of Britain, you know, kind of, but that you follow African traditions. Um, and it seems very interesting to me that, that the Changrai marriage and all of this coverage of, you know, kind of, of um, China-Zimbabwe investment, where Changrai was, was more than more prominent than usual, actually all happened in the same week. Um, you know, again, I might be overreading those tea leaves, but it, it, it seems interesting that they, all of those happened in one week. It is interesting, and I think also what this kind of, you know, diversity of the coverage, and I think what the Chinese did very well here, uh, whoever was responsible for this coverage, I mean, something tells me there was a PR agency somewhere here, but it's hard to tell. Nonetheless, um, they, they had articles that came out about telecommunications. They had articles that came out about education, about farming, about, you know, obviously the politics, about military aid. And it really, one of the nice things that, that all of this showed you was the texture of China's relations with most African countries. And I think it's the misrepresentation, both in the African press and in the Western press, that, you know, China is exclusively in Africa for natural resources, which by, you know, we, you and I both agree that is the driving uh, narrative, and that's the driving reason why they're there. However, uh, it's not quite that simple. And I thought this was a nice, you know, if you could actually have somebody bundle all of this up, this is very much the story of China and Africa, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, as we noticed, <laughs> um, you know, the old story does also come back because at this, also in the there same week, yep. um, Mugabe opened the, that, uh, we, we talked about that before, the military academy that that, um, that the Chinese company Anhui was building in um, in Zimbabwe um, for, in, in uh, it's a $98 million um, loan. 
kind of um, which is being repaid in diamonds. And um, so Mugabe opened that this week, promptly said that um, the reason they, they, Zimbabwe turned to China was because they were afraid of being invaded by Britain in, <laughs> in 2008. Um, and, then, um, and then he said, which was the most interesting for me, was saying that, um, you know, kind of that this new military college is supposed to be working as a, as a high-level military think tank to think through African strategies um, to deal with Western aggression. Um, and, um, you know, kind of and that, that um, high-level military people from all over the Southern African development community are going to be studying there. And that not, the partners, the kind of teaching partners and instruction partners to teach all these, all these military uh, personnel are coming from Pakistan and China and that they're already there and they're already teaching. Now it's, so, it's funny because yeah, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to pick up on a different story this week and uh, you know and this was the uh, and I first heard about this other story uh, when when uh, I think it was it was a Twitter one of my Twitter followers I B Morris uh, he he sent me a note saying did you hear that the Chinese are are buying uh, prisons in Zimbabwe Zimbabwe and I'm like oh God here we go again you know this prison labor story uh, yes, has been yes. debunked across the you know no one has ever found in any Chinese prison labor in Africa. Uh, so that part's mm. been debunked. So here we go again with yet another prison story in Africa. So then I go, okay, let's find out what's happening. It turns out that the Chinese uh, are buying a some uh, you know land that has prisons on them, and they're not going to be running the prisons themselves. They're going to be developing that land into a China shopping mall uh, in, uh, in 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 Harare. So uh, so again, not what it is, but people are so quick to jump on you know China prisons Africa. Yeah, but you know, as as we mean, as we discussed before we started taping, also is that the deal that the Zimbabweans struck with the Chinese was that, you know, kind of they 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 give they'll give them or they'll sell them these, these prisons in order to demolish the prisons and then build these big China shopping malls in the middle of Harare and other towns. But in 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 exchange for that, the Chinese actually have to build them new prisons outside of the towns. Um, and you know, and we were we were kind of discussing and wondering, kind of like when they de- when they design these prisons are. Are the designers going to be Chinese? Are they going to be designed along Chinese kind of prison design standards or Zimbabwean ones? It'll be fascinating to see. That is definitely something to look at. It's hard to imagine, though, that China will ever get into the prison management business in you know uh, in another country. I, yeah, that, they that seem I to just, be building infrastructure, not managing. But them. that's Although it. They, I mean, you know, yeah. they're building the buildings and then handing them over. So, uh, but the the last question I want to kind of ask you on this is that you know Robert Mugabe has had such a storied history with foreigners and particularly with Europeans. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if, it, if I'm getting my dates correct, you know, he began this campaign to expel, uh, you know, Westerners from, or white people, I should say, because a lot of them were second and third generation you know, Zimbabweans. And even, even longer. And even longer. So he expelled white people from, from their land. Uh, you know, now that he's courting the Chinese and now that the Chinese are settling in Zimbabwe in larger and larger numbers, does this present any type of contradiction to his own propaganda about his relationship with foreigners? Or is Mugabe's propaganda really focused on the former colonial powers, namely the British? Yeah, you know, um, I think oh, it's, it's, it's difficult to articulate. I think, um, you know, from he would probably say yes, but the Chinese have a long history of, of collaborating in, in anti-colonial liberation struggles, you know, and for that reason, they're, they're welcome. Um, 
you know, but I think from from his, his critics see him as as someone who is willing to throw the race car down when it when he needs to. You know, kind of. I think I don't know whether he's how racist he is himself, but he's definitely willing to play race issues when he needs to survive politically. And that's clearly what he did, you know, kind of um, in, with, with all of the kind of anti, anti-white kind of campaigns. Um, and, uh, you know, one would have to see, you know, kind of how, in how much political trouble he, he and uh, the ZANU-PF party, you know, kind of fall into in the future and what they need to do to get themselves out of it. You know, so uh, if I were Chinese, you know, I would probably not, you know, throw away my Chinese passport. Yeah, but so I guess, and you know, and this is the obvious question, a few months ago, about four or five months ago, back when I was still at France 24 in Paris, uh, one of the last assignments that I had to give to my editors was the, you know, let's get the Robert Mugabe obituary ready to go, because he was in Singapore at the time uh, on, you know, on a health uh, vacation, if you will, at a hospital, and there were rumors that he had died. Now, this is a man who's Mm. going on 89 years um, yeah, and he, he has is, his prostate cancer. He has prostate that's, cancer. That's he is he not long. He is, thankfully, he is not long for this world. This world. <laughs> I mean, this is an awful, awful man, and I feel very comfortable saying that. Um, so the question for the Chinese is, what happens the day after Robert Mugabe dies? Do you see, you know, the do you see Zanu PF holding on to control and continuing those relationships with the Chinese? I mean, the Chinese have invested an enormous amount in the relationship with Mugabe, or is is what we're seeing with uh, with Morgan Changarai and we're seeing the Chinese maybe quietly in the background building relationships with some of the other parties and some of the other factions um, or are the Chinese kind of going going to be very exposed the day after Mugabe dies um, I think from what I understand Zanu PF is already lining up successors and apparently one of the successors that are that I um, that is in the running um, is even more hardline than Mugabe is um, and, uh, you know, so I, I mean, I think it'll take a while probably for ZANU to, um, you know, kind of to, if, if, they, if they collapse or they morph into something else, I don't think that'll happen the day after Mugabe dies. Um, you know, um, at the same time, I think it's probably wise for the Chinese to, to you know, to broaden their base of support, you know, um, because there's a big rural-urban split in, in Zimbabwean politics. The, the rural people tend to be much more pro-Mugabe, pro-Zanu, and urban people tend to be more, you know, kind of much more, uh, you know, kind of critical of him. Um, and obviously, you know, kind of the, the Chinese want to make sure that the cities are on board, you know, so, um, and, and that's probably, you know, part of this kind of this big development boom and like, you know, PR boom that they do, that they're busy with might be kind of, you know, packing away investment for the future on that on that count, maybe. Well, this is definitely one of the most interesting areas in uh, China's relationships in Africa, and uh, I encourage you to keep an eye on this one, because uh, the, the, again, this this blizzard of coverage that came out this past week will probably not be the end, and, uh, and something to keep an eye on for future, especially the day after, again, day two after Mugabe dies, will be very interesting to see how the Chinese position themselves and how ZANU-PF positions the Chinese. So, let's move up north now, or actually over west uh, to Monrovia and uh, a new $60 million ministerial building that was announced this week by the Chinese that they're paying. Um, and uh, it seems like in Liberia, people are extremely, extremely excited about this. Uh, now, this follows Cobus, uh, the largest building project that the, in terms of buildings uh, that the Chinese have done in Africa was the you know African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. And that got rave reviews from a lot of people. At the same time, a lot of people said, why can't can't Africans build this headquarters? Uh, but nonetheless, the, the Ethiopians and the AUP seemed rather grateful. And now 
we're seeing this new ministerial complex uh, come up in Liberia. This is not, of course, the first time that the Chinese have built uh, government buildings. In Kinshasa, when I was living there, the Chinese were building the legislative building, the parliament. Uh, and I think around the continent they've been doing this, but it seems to be getting higher profile now. And so we're moving into this phase of what I call building diplomacy. Uh, we've had stadium diplomacy, we've had ping pong diplomacy, but this building diplomacy is an extremely effective way to forge relationships with the grueling and governing elites of a specific country who are, you know, are in desperate need of office infrastructure and office space. Um, what is special, in your opinion, about this announcement that we saw out of Liberia today, uh, this week? Well, you know, as you say that, uh, you know, kind of these these um, projects seem to be increasing, but I think that what's very special about this one is its size. It's, um, it's from what I understand, it's the second largest, it's a Chinese second largest project in Africa after the, the African Union headquarters. And it seems to be massive, you know, like, like you know, in, incredible kind of government complexes and, you know, office complexes and so on. So, um, yeah, you know, kind of, it, it, they seem to they seem to be really kind of jumping into that. Um, at the same time, I want to ask your your opinion. Um, in the same week this was announced, um, Liberia, um, the Li Liberian government, the Liberian Parliament, formally uh, ratified one China policy, which was um, it was uh, before it was adopted by um, their transitional government before Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, you know, formally took over. Now they formally formally okayed it and actually put it in, into made it their official policy um could it possibly in any way be an accident that these two things are, are being announced in the same week no way that was an accident there is no, again there's very little left to chance here and i cannot imagine that you know chinese ambassador zhao jianhua would have ever ever gone public with an announcement of 60 million dollars for this new building if there was any doubt that the one child policy from liberia and that endorsement from the legislature was in question um, so that is a prerequisite for any type of relationship with the Chinese, much less a, a multi-million dollar investment on this front. So, but again, this is another very interesting dynamic and a thread that you know transcends the continent. So we talk about why China is in Africa, and part of it is obviously for natural resources, but that's not the only part. This diplomatic isolation of Taiwan is incredibly important and cannot be overstated. So to hear you know, that the, the legislature kind of rat ratified and reaffirmed the one China policy with Beijing as the sole legitimate government of China and is another blow to Taiwan and its efforts to kind of legitimize itself in the international community. No, no doubt in my mind that it was uh, it was not coincidental. Those were those were absolutely linked. So let me give you a little bit of background on this uh, on this ministerial building. It's going to accommodate 10 government ministries and agencies. It'll cost $60 million and it'll, you know, obviously it's going to uh, construction will be done by the Chinese themselves. So, um, you, you know, this is very important for a country like Liberia, who was, you know, caught in a just brutal and bloody civil war for, for, for over 10 years. Uh, Charles Taylor, of course, you know, was is, uh, you know, at the International Criminal Court in, uh, in The Hague, uh, you know, answering for those crimes. Nonetheless, uh, this is part of the rebuilding effort. So as a soft power device, doesn't seem like it comes much better than this. Maybe not for the people, but certainly for the governing elites. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was what was interesting was a little kerfuffle that, that happened this week about where exactly in Monrovia this thing was going to be built, because um, you know there was there was issues about whether it was going to land right on top of a of a, a 
hospital and a religious broadcasting center that was uh, built by the by American money um, in the in the 50s and was now re, you know was now the Billy Graham Foundation actually gave money to rebuild it after the Civil War. Um, so there was a lot of kind of uh, angry kind of writing in the Liberian press that um, that this um, complex is going to land there. And now the Liberian government has denied that it's landing that it's going to be built on that site. And but they haven't said where it's going to be built. In, you know, kind of next. So I was wondering what you made of this kind of weird overlap of like Chinese diplomacy and, you know, kind of American Christian aid kind of all kind of fighting for space in Monrovia. It was very weird for me. Well, it, it may be weird, but this is the place where it's going to happen. Obviously, Liberia having a very special connection and relationship with the United States. Liberia was formed by freed American slaves. Liberia, the name itself. Monrovia named after President Monroe. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, this this is the place where that would happen. And as a result of that connection with the United States, evangelical groups have been very strong there. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think that this is that important for the Chinese. Um, you know, that's really, the, I think, the question of the host government to sort out with their uh, with their other factions. The Chinese will write the check. They'll bring in the workers. They'll build the building. But the land has to be sorted out by the host government, in this case, Liberia. Uh, but, Kobus, that story that you bring up uh, is was available on the uh, LiberianObserver.com. It's the Daily Observer's website. And the title of the story is... Uh, China's money leading Liberia by the nose. Kobus, you pointed out, though, that some of the facts in that story may no longer be accurate, though. Yeah, um, and, um, you know, posted that story on Facebook page, and I just just earlier today posted the the kind of follow up to it also to our Facebook page. So, you know, kind of if people are interested in reading more about it, like kind of, uh, you know, both of those are up on our Facebook page, and it seems that the Liberian government have uh, has um, you know, kind of responded to the the kind of controversy that broke out about it, and they they're saying that they they're moving the site, but they're not saying too well. Fantastic. Well, since it's up on the Facebook page already, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you think on not only this story, but any of the stories that we've talked about today. Uh, Kobus, I'm glad you brought up our Facebook page because I've been derelict in mentioning it so far. It's uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and we have not only uh, articles that we're posting up there every day, but we also have an archive of all of uh, the past 25 editions of our podcast, which you can listen to. You can also uh, check out the Twitter feeds on a single page of Kobus, myself, and uh, Anne Sherman, who has been absent from our podcast for a couple weeks while she's settling at uh, Tsinghua Dashuya, Tsinghua University in Beijing, getting out her uh, VPN connections and her internet connections and getting, getting together and getting settled there. We hope to have her on the show again next week. One of the things that we hope that she will be able to share with us is the fact that in the dorm where she's staying at Tsinghua University, there are more Africans there than there are Americans. And uh, that's a big surprise. But the African student population at China's finest university seems to be uh, rather large. And we're going to hopefully start getting some of their perspectives on Sino-African relations up on our Facebook page as well. So facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Speaking of our Twitter feeds, uh, Kobus, where can people find you if they want to see uh, what you're reading and some of your insights on the issues of the day? 
Um, I'm Matt Stanesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. That's S-T-A-N-D-E-S-Q-U-E. The connection broke down there just a little bit for Cobus. Uh, you can also follow Anne over at Anne Schur, A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-07. And me, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting pretty much every day. Top four to five stories on China and Africa. So that's a good way to kind of, it's like a newswire. Uh, and uh, just to stay on top of the key issues. And, of course, you can follow us all on Facebook, again, at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, go over to iTunes. We would love, love, love and be so grateful if you could give us a few comments because the comments and the ratings there really help us kind of raise our uh, our profile in the iTunes ecosystem. So that would help, you know, love it or hate it. We hope that you love it. Uh, but you can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and, of course, on Facebook. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>